All right, as you guys are getting settled, go ahead and grab your Bible. Make your way to the New Testament, the book of James. If you're a guest with us, my name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and we are taking our time this summer to work through the New Testament book of James. So while you make your way there, I'm actually going to read you a short article from the March 22nd, 2013 edition of Fortune Magazine. A writer named Omar Akhtar was writing a series of articles back in 2013 with some stories behind some of the biggest brands that many of us have grown up with. He was kind of unpacking what's behind them. And I remembered the story as I was preparing for this morning, and I want to read it to you. And this is a true story. In the 1920s, two brothers were partners in the Dassler Brothers Sports Shoe Company, operating out of their mother's laundry room in the small German town of Herzo. Now, the name of the town is much longer than Herzo. I can't say it. So we're going to shorten it to Herzo. Adolf Dossler was the quiet, thoughtful craftsman who designed and made the shoes, complemented by his older brother, Rudolf, who was the more extroverted salesman. And although the brothers joined the Nazi party when Hitler seized power in 1933, it didn't stop them from getting legendary African-American track star Jesse Owens to wear their shoes as he competed and won four gold medals in the 1936 Olympics. Owens' victory gave the shoes international exposure and sales of the Dassler's product exploded. But the success created new tensions in the brothers' relationship, a relationship already strained by the fact that their families lived in the same villa despite the fact that their wives did not get along. Well, you know that's not a good idea. There were several incidents that were said to have precipitated their conflict, but the most widely accepted one took place during World War II when the Allies were bombing Herzo. As Adolf and his wife climbed into a bomb shelter, already occupied by Rudolf and his wife, he exclaimed, those dirty expletive, are back again. He was referring to the Allied forces. Rudolph was convinced the remark was directed at him and his family. A feud, one of the most epic and well biblical in business history, was born. When Rudolph got called up for service, he suspected Adolf and his wife had schemed to get him sent to the front so that they could have him out of the way at work. Later, Rudolph was arrested for deserting his post and then arrested by the Allies on suspicion of working for the Gestapo. On both occasions, Rudolph was convinced that Adolph was the one ratting him out. His suspicions were later confirmed by a report filed by an American investigating officer. While Rudolph languished in a prisoner of war camp, Adolph rebuilt the business and he did it by selling shoes to American GIs. The conflict escalated as the brothers split the company into two pieces in 1948, dividing the assets and the employees equally between themselves. Adolf named his company Adidas, a combination of his first and last names. Rudolf attempted the same thing by naming his company Ruda, but eventually changed it to the more athletic sounding Puma. 
The two built competing factories on opposite sides of the river and quickly became responsible for much of Herzog's economy with nearly every single person in their town working for either one company or the other. As the entire town got caught up in the Dassler family feud, the rivalry reached ridiculous proportions. There were local businesses that served only Adidas or only Puma people. Dating or marrying across company lines was forbidden. And Herzo became known as the town of bent necks because people first looked at which shoes you were wearing before they decided whether or not they would talk to you. Now, while Rudolph had the sales staff and was better at moving product, Adi had the technical know-how and he had the better relationships with athletes who could provide exposure, which tipped the scales in favor of Adidas, with Puma always playing catch-up. However, the two focused so heavily on each other, both companies were slow to react to the threat of Nike, which would come to dominate the athletic footwear industry, leaving both Adidas and Puma languishing far behind. It wasn't until, listen to this, it was not until 2009, when employees of both companies symbolized the end of six decades of feuding by playing a friendly soccer match in Herzo. Now, I went to look it up. I wanted to see pictures of it. I thought for sure to really symbolize peace, the Adidas employees would wear Puma and the Puma employees would wear Adidas. They didn't. They each wore their own. But they ended the feud. The problem was by then, the Dassler brothers had both died within four years of each other. And even in their death, their animosity continued as both brothers requested to be buried at opposite ends of the same cemetery, as far away geographically from each other as humanly possible. James chapter four. <laughs> what causes quarrels? What causes fights amongst you? If you've been with us at all and going through this letter, you know that James loves rhetorical questions. And the subject of this question is something that every single person in this room is intimately familiar with. Now, you may not have unresolved relational conflict to the degree that the Dassler brothers had and the town of Herzo in Germany had, but you know what it is to have relational conflict and you know what it is to have unresolved relational conflict. Pastor James, being a wise and loving pastor, he simply refuses to overlook the presence of such quarrels and fighting. James will not overlook the presence of unresolved relational conflict amongst God's people. I want you to realize the proportion of what was happening here. It's, it's worse than we probably think. James did not say a quarrel broke out or a fight broke out. James said plural. There were quarrels. There were fights. Rather than being marked by the fruit of true wisdom, peacemakers looking to make peace with one another, as we saw last week, the people of God that James is writing to were making war. They weren't making peace. And they were doing it with each other. And I, something that God did a number of years ago, I, I think it was probably five, six years ago, I wish I could remember, but I was reading a text very similar to this one in the Bible, and God just 
turned lights on for me at one point, and I began to see some of these texts through a lens that was so helpful to me because there are times when you and I grow in our Christian faith and we're exposed to different theologians and we're exposed to different teachings and we read the stories of the Bible and we go through the book of Acts that we can become prone to romanticizing a certain period in church history. James chapter four helps us not to romanticize a certain period in the life of the church. These were genuine followers of Christ. They could not get along. They were fighting and they were quarreling. Now when you and I get our hands on Jonathan Edwards for the first time or we get our hands on Calvin for the first time and we start reading their teachings and thinking about things, we think if we could just go back to the day of Jonathan Edwards and the history in our country, things would be so much better. It wouldn't. Jonathan Edwards had the privilege in the history of this country to pastor through two, quite possibly three, depending on which historian you you choose to read, possibly three genuine revivals in the history of America. At the end of the third, Edwards wrote a book, no one ever reads it, it's called On Revival. And in that particular book, Edwards outlined what he felt like were the important marks of what real revival was, but more importantly, what the enemy of true revival was. And Edwards says in all three instances, all three revivals that he had the privilege of pastoring the church through, all three of them ended because of fights and quarrels amongst God's people. So the reality of it is, like the people that James is writing to, like the church then, the church in Edwards' day, and even you and I now, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, we have been forgiven past, present, and future of our sin. But the reality of it is, until the day he comes, we still have to face the presence of sin, the temptation of sin, and the effects of sin. And because we're talking about relationships between two sinners, there is no golden age to it. Like Jonathan Edwards and like Pastor James, neither of them try to take us into the weeds of what people are fighting about. The substance of the quarrels is not what's important. The burden that Pastor James has is to help you and I be able to diagnose the cause of the ongoing, unresolved, relational conflict that you and I seem to always have with each other. I was reminded of something that Paul Tripp said in Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He said, wouldn't you like to understand why some people irritate you more than others? Wouldn't that be good to know? Have you ever asked that? I mean, have you ever asked that question? Okay, I have. Wouldn't you like to know why relationships turn sour and tempers can flare so quickly? Wouldn't you like to know why it's hard not to replay those hurtful words over and over in your head? He said, shouldn't we then consider why, as sinners, we're so much better at making war than we are at making peace? This is Pastor James' burden. He wants us to be able to understand and diagnose why, as sinners, we're so much better making war with one another than we are at making peace. As James is writing this to the people that he loved, that is scattered throughout Jerusalem, that continue to have this unresolved relational conflict with each other, by God's providence, you and I are in his peripheral vision. And he's serving us this morning. And so as we get into James chapter four, we're just gonna spend our time in the first three verses. And the first thing that Pastor James wants you and I to understand that the big E on the eye chart that he is going to then dive under and around throughout these verses is simply this. Your unresolved relational conflict, 
Now just take a minute and get it in your head. If I give you three seconds, you can picture a face, can't you? Unresolved relational conflict. Your unresolved relational conflict, it's not their fault. That's the first thing he wants you to see. Your unresolved relational conflict with another brother or sister, maybe even in this room, it's not their fault. You see, our immediate reaction when things don't go the way that we hoped or we wanted them to go, our immediate reaction with others and with circumstances is to point our finger back at people or things. If that person would only be more, fill in the blank. If that person would just be less, fill in the blank. It's the traffic's fault. I was stuck and I was angry. That's why I exploded at you and took your head off. It was the traffic's fault. See, unresolved relational conflict seems so simple to us. The reason we have the conflict is because of someone else. But James says, just hold on a second. He wants you just to take a step back from all the finger pointing for just a minute and to consider something he's already said. James has already shown us in chapter one that the source of the temptation that we face in this life are the evil desires that have taken root in our own hearts. And he's already shown us in chapter three that our hearts are the spring out of which our words flow, words that have the power to bring down an entire forest. So you and I shouldn't be surprised when James wants to get underneath the fights and the conflicts that we have, when James wants to see what is the source of the quarrels and the unresolved relational conflict, we should not be surprised that James turns around and says you should point the finger back at yourself. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You see, people and circumstances don't cause us to fight. You understand that? People that could be more of this or people that could be less of that, traffic that could be easier than this, they don't cause us to quarrel and fight. The occasion of our fights are not the cause. They don't cause it to happen. Underneath relational conflict, this is what James wants us to see, Underneath this relational conflict, persistent conflict, unresolved conflict, beats a heart whose desires have become disordered. Underneath your relational conflict with other brothers and sisters is a heart whose desires have become disordered. And this is no insignificant thing to James. It shouldn't be an insignificant thing to us either. Just listen to the intensity and the escalating language that James uses. Verse one, a, a quarrel is born out of an internal war. This internal war in verse two gives rise to fights and, and murder. When James is not indifferent to the presence of relational conflict amongst God's people. He won't just shrug off difficult people. He won't just compartmentalize them and move on. He won't just dismiss the presence of broken relationships amongst the community of God's people. James won't just turn a blind eye to it. And the reality of it is, if we're honest with ourselves, I know that this is true of me more than I would ever really want to admit, but if we're honest about it, you and I have become masters at diminishing these things. We can easily compartmentalize people. We actually pride ourselves on being able to cut people off and move on. We pride ourselves, even amongst the, the church, in being able to be a certain kind of person that other people just can't relate to, but that's who I am. James is not indifferent to these things. James does not want these things to be present amongst God's people. You and I have become masters at diminishing them, and, and it shouldn't be. 
James would not allow this kind of conflict amongst God's people to go unaddressed. He doesn't want it to go unaddressed for us. Now, there's something that James says here that I want to to talk about very briefly for, for two reasons. First reason is this. Lots of people have asked over the years, over the centuries, really, and you'll see it in almost every commentary about James, and in the two or three people I've talked to already about the passage, they ask this question. Were God's people really killing each other? I mean, had it gotten there? Was there really murder going on amongst God's people? Well, the reality of it is, James is using this word murder in much the same way he uses the word war in verse one as well. James is using these words metaphorically because his intention is for you to feel and to see the significance of these relational conflicts that are present amongst us. James wants you to feel and to see the significance of the problem because the reality of it is until you and I come face to face with just how significant these things really are and what the cause of them really is coming out of our own heart, you and I will never sense our need for God's grace in them. So James is using this language specifically because I feel like maybe the people he's writing to are much like us and we've become very good at diminishing these things making peace not with one another, but with the presence of broken relationships, making peace with the compartmentalizing of people, making peace with the ability to cut people off and go. James doesn't want that to be the case, and he uses these words that we might feel the weight and the significance of it, and and so I don't think that they were actually coming together as God's people like we are right now, God's words being read, they're singing songs, and they're taking people out in a body bag before it's over. I don't think that's what's happening. They really weren't killing each other, but it was a significant problem. There was dysfunction. And I say there's a second reason I address it because last week I actually used this same word in our sermon. Last week I talked about what happened in Orlando when 50 people were murdered at a nightclub. I talked about what happened in Dallas when five police officers were murdered. I used the same word when I talked about what happened to Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and what happened to Philando Castile in St. Paul. And here's the problem with what I did. James used those words very specifically. He used them metaphorically. He wanted to communicate the weight of what was happening. When I used that same word consistently through all of those events, for some people, when they heard me, they heard me say that what happened in Orlando, a very clear intent that a person went into that nightclub with, and what happened in Dallas, a very clear intent with that person who took the lives of those policemen, was the same intent that was used by the policemen in Baton Rouge and St. Paul. They heard me connect those things and felt the same intent was behind all of them. That was not my intention in using the word. I should have been more careful with the words I chose to use. Because I used that word, some people felt like I was saying the intent behind Orlando and the intent behind Dallas was the same intent that was behind what happened in Baton Rouge and St. Paul. That because people in Orlando were different in one sense and because the police officers were police officers in Dallas, but the men in Baton Rouge and the men in St. Paul were killed simply because they were African-American. That's not the intent behind what I was saying. And here's the other reason I bring it up. Many of you were so kind to contact me, to contact Raymond, to contact Demetrius over the 400 for some who were there, and to contact Sean to thank us for our willingness to talk about what was going on in the life of our country last week. And some of you demonstrated as well what James talked about last week with this true wisdom giving fruit to the way that we actually live and being open to reason. And you contacted me and you contacted Sean. I know you contacted Demetrius, some of you, and you asked to better understand why we said what we said, why we prayed what we prayed, why certain words were used, and how you heard certain things that 
that we might better understand each other. I bring it up because that was a demonstration of what James was talking about in the presence of true wisdom bearing fruit out in our lives. And it's one of the ways and one of the reasons I can honestly say with a clean conscience, you make it a a joy and you make it easy to be one of your pastors. So I want to thank you for that. And, and I trust that as we continue to talk, if you, if you still heard things that were prayed or said or, or written last week, and you're curious about the intent that was behind it or the words that were used, talk to us. Talk to us. Hopefully, we'll display the same openness to reason that you display in, in coming to us. But Pastor James, he used that word specifically. He used it for a reason. He wanted God's people then, and he wants us now to feel the weight and the significance and really the horror of making peace with relational dysfunction in the life of the church. He wants us to be those who, who like he talked about last week, are intent on making peace with each other rather than making war with each other. And for that to happen, James knows we have to get to the root We have to get to what's underneath the unresolved relational conflict. What's underneath the quarrels and the fights. We have to get to the disordered desires, the disordered passions that have taken root in our hearts. Look at what he says in verse two. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Your passions are at war. You desire and you don't have. You covet and you can't obtain. These Christians, this church, much like you and I, they seem to lack at times the discernment as to what was underneath their their, their dysfunctional relationships, what was actually causing their fights and quarrels. And rather than understanding what was causing them, that they might address them, they were taking the easy way out and they were pointing fingers at each other. And they were fighting with each other. And James wants us to see unambiguously that the quarrels and the fights that we have amongst each other, the unresolved relational conflicts we have with each other are because there are disordered desires in our hearts that are not being met. They're not being met. Some of your Bibles, if you look down in verse two, where James says you desire and you do not have, some of your Bibles will talk about there being wants. There's wants that are in your heart that you're not able to obtain. That's just a a translator's way of trying to help convey to you the meaning or or the weight behind the word that James uses there. This word desire is where it's used in other places in the Bible, almost always talks about a self-pleasing, self-seeking, self-serving attitude. What he's he's saying is that there's this attitude and desire that has taken root in your heart where you want to please yourself. What you want is your comfort, your convenience, and and your control. And those things are more important than anyone else. Your needs, as you define them in your heart, are more important than the needs of anyone else around you. One writer, he tried to explain it this way. He said, because you please yourself and I please myself, because I would rather put my comfort and my convenience in 100 little ways every single day ahead of the comfort and convenience of others around me, that is the reason for this complete relational breakdown amongst God's people. Self-pleasing, self-seeking. David Pallison, he's a biblical counselor, wrote a fantastic book called Seen with New Eyes. And in one of the chapters, he, he actually deals with what's going on here in James 4. And I want you to listen to what he says. Maybe he can make this more clear for you. Pallison says, one of the joys of biblical ministry comes when you're able to turn the lights on in another person's dark room. He said, you see, people usually don't see their desires, their wants, 
that have taken over their hearts. He said, souls are cured as those who are ignorant of their desires and deceived by their wants are disturbed by the light of God's analytic gaze and then comforted by the love of Jesus' shed substitutionary blood which purchased the inexpressible gift. Powelson said, I have yet to meet a couple. And he's going to use a marriage metaphor here, but this could go for any unresolved relational dysfunction in this room. He said, I've yet to meet a couple locked in hostility and the accompanying sphere and self-pity, hurt and self-righteousness who really understood and reckoned with their underlying wants. Do you hear what he said? I've yet to meet a couple locked in hostility who really understood and reckoned with their underlying wants and motives. <clears throat> James 4, he says, teaches us that cravings underlie conflicts. Why do you fight? It's not because of that person or this person. It's not because of your wife. It's not because of your husband. It's because of something that's true about you. Couples who see what rules them, and this could go in again to any relationship where there's unresolved conflict, Couples who see what rules them, and he gives a sample list, craving for affection, attention, power, vindication, control, comfort, a hassle-free life. When you see what rules you, you can repent and find God's grace made real to you and then learn how to make peace rather than war. See, what David Powelson's saying, what, what James is trying to say, and I trust the Holy Spirit to make sense of it in your heart is simply this. You take whatever unresolved or persistent relational conflict there is in your life, when I say that word and those people pop into your head, you take any of those things, you pop the hood on it, and what you will find underneath that conflict is a craving that is not being met. Cravings underlie conflict. Why do you quarrel and fight? Because you don't get what you want. That's why. Watch how this morphs in your heart. Watch how these desires begin to morph in your heart and this quarreling and fighting. Just listen to this. See if this can sound anything like what you're familiar with in your own heart. These desires that we have, oftentimes legitimate and good desires, they begin to morph and take unhealthy proportions in our heart. And those desires, they morph into demands. Something that I want and desire becomes something I must have. Our hearts become set on them. The life that we picture in our mind that defines what is good for us must include this thing. That desire becomes a demand, but it's not done. That demand continues to morph and it morphs into a need. Now what I desire becomes something I must have, something I need to have. It's essential for my life. At one point, that desire had a quality to it that was nice if I could get it, but now if I'm going to have a fruitful, happy, productive life by the way that I define it, I must have this thing. I need to have this thing. It's essential for me. This desire has become a demand. This demand has been morphed in our minds, in our heart, into something that we need. Needs then morph in our heart into expectations. I want something. I must have something. I need that thing, and now you should help me get it. See, if I'm convinced that I need something, and you and I, we, you say we're friends, you say you care about me, you say you actually love me, then it seems right for me to expect you to help me get what I've defined that I need, right? I want this, I must have it, I need it, 
Therefore, if you really love me, you should be bent on helping me get it. You're starting to touch the source of some relational dysfunction. Improper, need-driven expectations of each other. Eventually, when our desires morph into these needs and these expectations, we become convinced that what we think is a need is actually our right to have. You ever been there? You ever felt that? Familiar at all to you? This will shape every relationship that you have on this earth. James will even take us in the direction to help us see it will shape the relationship you have with God himself. Disordered desires, they take on the form of demands, they grow into things we think we need and have to have, they become expectations that we put on other people, and when those expectations are not met, those expectations morph into disappointment. I want, I must have, I need, you should, but you didn't. You didn't. You didn't meet the expectation that I was putting on you. Now, you didn't understand the game my heart was playing. You didn't know the rules to this whole thing. And you know, frankly, you and I don't know when our heart's doing it either. This whole thing morphs in our hearts sometimes at a speed that you and I can't even be aware of. And we don't know the game it's playing and the rules it's playing. But we put that on other people. And when they don't meet that expectation that we have for them to meet the needs that we've defined out of the desires that have gotten disordered in our heart, watch out. Because disappointment very quickly turns into punishment. Because you didn't meet that need, that expectation that I put on you, I'm going to punish you. And the way that we punish people for not meeting our disordered desires in relationship, it would take me a week to just try to list off as many of them as I could. We cut people off. Let's compartmentalize you and put you over here. Maybe you just give them the silent treatment make them feel so bad about something they don't know that they've done because they don't know the game your heart's playing. They don't know the rules that you put on them, but you're just gonna cut them off until they can come groveling back to you to figure it out. Maybe you just snap, bite their head off, continually treat them with contempt until at some point, someone finally says, what's going on? I, I, I want this. I have to have it. I need it for my life. Therefore, I expect you to give it to me and help me get it. But you didn't, so I'm disappointed. And because you didn't, I'm going to punish you. That's what happens. James, being a good, gracious pastor, he is offering for us this morning a diagnosis of what lies underneath our unresolved relational conflict that if we will listen to what he is saying, I promise you, it will save many of the relationships that you have. It will absolutely save and even transform many of the relationships that you have if you just listen. It's actually a gift of God's grace this morning because he is helping us to see, not just make peace with the fact that these things exist, but helping us to see what's underneath them. He wants us to come face to face with it. He wants us to get eye to eye with the disordered desires and cravings in our heart because until we do, Until we see that the problem is actually me, we're never gonna recognize our need for God's grace in the conflict. See, our relational conflicts, they expose the the underbelly of sin at work in our heart. But here's the thing, these, these disordered desires that give rise and give birth to these relational conflicts, they actually reflect something else. Oftentimes, these disordered desires that give birth to these conflicts come because first, 
our hearts became disordered in the way we thought about who God was. Disordered thinking about who God is gives space for the desires of our heart to become disordered. Disordered desires in our hearts, taking those things that oftentimes are legitimate and allowing them morph into things that we think we have to have for life that produce the kind of conflict that comes in our relationships with each other often can be traced back to disordered thinking about who God really is. That's where James is going to go. Listen to this. Disordered desires in your heart, the ones that give rise to this kind of relational conflict, they grow as you and I forget God's graciousness towards us. We lose sight of God's graciousness towards us. And we allow space for the desires in our heart to become disordered. You don't have, James says, because you don't ask. He's writing to followers of Jesus. We forget that sometimes. He's writing to the church. That's why there's no romantic picture of the church. This is happening amongst God's people. And God's people who know God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as their king and as their savior, the one who has forgiven them, the one who has made their adoption into God's family possible, are failing to even talk to God about the relational conflict and dysfunction that they're going through. The very one who said, ask of me if you need wisdom, If you find yourself in a circumstance in life, a trial or a temptation, and you need wisdom to see it through my perspective, that you might respond rightly to it. If you need wisdom, just ask. I give generously. The same one, James says, from whom all good gifts come to those he loves. The same one who calls you to be born again by his word. You don't have because you're not even talking to him. Your thinking about God has become disordered because you're no longer satisfied by his graciousness towards you. And because you're not satisfied by his graciousness towards you, you are going out in your own self-sufficiency trying to get a need met for yourself that you have legitimized by your desires being disordered. And you're not talking to him. Disordered desires grow as our thoughts about the graciousness of God towards us become disordered. Persistent or unresolved relational conflict, it it reveals that we've lost sight of his graciousness and generosity, that we're not being satisfied by him, that we're demanding that someone else or others in general, that they meet a need that only God is meant to ultimately meet in our heart. You don't have because you don't ask. Disordered desires, they they grow in your heart as you forget not just God's graciousness towards you, but you forget God's goodness. Look at verse three. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, we like to take this verse and this verse you can find on, on every major piece of, of, of silver, of, of, of glassware, of coffee mugs, of t-shirts, every major print that you can find in a Christian bookstore, you've got this verse somewhere. Everybody knows this verse, but everybody takes it out of the context of what he's talking about. He's talking about relational conflict. And James says, you, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There are some people that hear what James is saying and say, you know what, James, I am talking. I am praying. I am asking God, but it's not working. Some of you are forgetting God's graciousness towards you, and because you're forgetting God's graciousness towards you, you're trying to satisfy needs on your own through others that only he's meant to satisfy. But there are others, he James says, who are talking to him. 
They're praying, they're asking, but it's just not working. And James says, the high likelihood for you is simply this. You've misunderstood why we pray. You're talking to God, even in the midst of your unresolved relational conflict, but what you're talking to him about is his willingness to rubber stamp your agenda for that situation. You've got a particular kingdom on which you sit on the throne of and particular things that you think should work themselves out, and so you come to God as the means for those ends. And James says, yeah, you're asking, but you're asking wrongly. You're asking that God make your kingdom known and your kingdom come. See, Jesus had taught and the disciples had continued to teach the church since the time that he sent them out that our communion with God, our prayer, our communication with God is meant first and foremost to align our hearts with God's purposes, with God's agenda, and with God's will. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, that first and foremost, God's name would be hallowed, that God's name would be exalted, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. And it was from that that we prayed that our provision would be met, our pardon would be secured, our protection would be made known. See, James says, you're asking, but you're asking wrongly. You've misunderstood why we pray. We pray that our hearts might be aligned to God's, our will aligned to his, our purposes aligned to his. Prayer is not a tool for us to use to get God to do what we want. I mean, just think about it relationally. Just think about if you have a friend or or those of you who are parents and you have children, just think about if the entire connection that you had with that person, all the conversation that you had with that person was simply them coming to you, trying to figure out whatever they could say or do to manipulate you to get from you whatever it is they really want. That was it. No real desire to be known, no real desire to know you, be known by you, no real desire to be with you simply because of who you are, no other connection than to see you as a means to the end that they want. How would that feel? How would that feel? Yeah, you ask, but you ask wrongly because you've misunderstood why we talk to him. Disordered desires in the heart They're reflected, not just in the fights and quarrels we have with each other, but they're reflected in the way we relate to God himself. James is going to get into this specifically next week. He's going to talk about the fact that it's not just the disordered desires that give rise to the conflict we have with each other, but there's a conflict. There's a tension that grows even between us and God, due and born out of these disordered desires. You adulterous people, at verse 4, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Underneath these tensions with each other and ultimately tensions we have with God himself are disordered desires, but we'll get to that next week. This week, it's relational conflict with each other. Unresolved or persistent relational conflict. And here's what I, I want you to know. James is, is doing the, the wise and, and gracious thing for us of, of helping us by God's grace to see what's underneath our unresolved relational conflict because until we see what's underneath it and come face to face with it, we won't see our need for God's grace in the midst of it. But he's also doing this. Again, a wise and master pastor. He's helping us to see that the way out of such unresolved or persistent relational conflict is not nearly as difficult as we make it. The cause is not as difficult as we seem to make it. The way out is not as complicated as we seem to make it. See, if losing sight of God's graciousness and goodness is symptomatic of a disordered heart, and a disordered heart that then gives rise to relational conflict with each other, 
then it would make sense that ending relational conflict and moving out of relational conflict starts with fixing our eyes back on the one who is truly good and truly gracious. The one from whom every good gift comes from. To simply ask. To ask for whatever it is that we need. Our way out of relational conflict starts by fixing our eyes back again on the one who is truly good and truly gracious. The one who said, ask of me. I delight in giving you what you need. Every good thing you need is a gift that comes from me. It makes sense then to fix our eyes upon the one truly good and gracious and ask for what we need. Ask for the wisdom that we need to see the conflict that we're in through the lens that he has, through his glory and his purposes. Ask for the wisdom that we need to see the craving that's underlying the fighting that we continue to have with each other. Ask to see his graciousness and his goodness again or for the first time. It's not as difficult as we think. Here's the best news of all. The invitation that God gives you and I, the invitation that through James, God gave his people then, the invitation to come and ask him for whatever it is that we need. In the moments and the times of persistent and unresolved relational conflict, the invitation to come to him, to ask him for what we need, assumes that a more significant and a more serious relational conflict has already been resolved. Now, this is the best part. The invitation to come to him, the only one truly good and truly gracious, to ask for whatever it is we need in these circumstances, the wisdom that we need, the insight into our own hearts that we need, the sight of his graciousness and goodness that we need, whatever it is we need, it assumes that the most significant relational conflict that you and I will ever have in this life has already been dealt with. The most significant relational conflict that you and I will ever have in this life is the conflict of our sin in light of God's holiness. That is it. The invitation to come and ask for what we need in these moments of unresolved relational conflict, the wisdom that we need, presupposes that that conflict has already been dealt with. And good news, it has. In the most glorious display of what true graciousness and true goodness is, God the Father, through the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus in our place for our sin has made a way for that conflict to be resolved. He has made a way for the conflict between our sin and his holiness to be fixed. For that conflict to find resolution. Because God has in his graciousness and goodness made a way for that conflict to be resolved, you and I as recipients of that grace can come to him and ask for anything that we need in the midst of our relational conflict that we can be people who now move forward in his wisdom, making peace to his glory and our good. But it presupposes the first one's been dealt with. And so this morning, God through Pastor James issues you an invitation. Every single person sitting here, an invitation. For some, it's to ask him for what you need most right now. And that's a sight of his holiness and your sin. Of his goodness and his graciousness and your need. You have not yet seen your sin in light of his holiness and you have not yet seen his graciousness in light of your rebellion. This morning, 
The most significant thing you have is to come to God and ask him to show you your need for him, to show you his glory in the face of his son that you might see your need for him and confess your need for him and receive from him forgiveness and pardon and redemption that you can come to him in any of these conflicts and say, this is what I need. You can ask. Many of you in here have tasted of his grace through faith in his son for your sins but you still have persistent or unresolved relational conflict with others, some even in this room. This morning, God would invite you very simply to come. He has resolved for you by his grace the most significant conflict you will ever have, and because of that, he invites you to come and ask him for what you need. Wisdom to see it through his eyes. Wisdom and insight to see what it is that's underlying the fights and the quarrels that you have with others because of your own heart. What's the craving? What's disordered? Wisdom to see again and to be delighted and satisfied again in his goodness and his graciousness for you. He invites you to ask. He invites you to come. Because God has made a way to resolve the greatest conflict you you and I will ever face in this life, I want you to know that there's hope through that same graciousness and through that same goodness for for our fights and quarrels with each other. They can be resolved. And they'll be resolved by his, by his goodness. They'll be resolved by his graciousness. And they'll be resolved for his glory. And they can be resolved for our good. So this morning, before we respond, we're gonna give you just a couple of moments to allow you to reflect. To allow you to come to the Lord and ask him. Ask him for what it is you need. Ask him for what it is you need right now in the midst of whatever it is that you're facing, unresolved, persistent relational conflict, unresolved conflict between your sin and his holiness. Ask him for what you need. I'm going to pray, and and then we're going to have the opportunity to respond by remembering his goodness and his graciousness towards us through the life, death, resurrection of his son as we take communion together. So I'm going to pray. You're going to have a moment to reflect, and then we'll respond. Father, thank you this morning that your word does not settle for superficial answers, superficial solutions, Lord, you don't give us little fixes to the difficult problems that we face in this life, Lord. Your word does what it says. It goes down deep into the heart and does what only it can do. It divides and exposes our thoughts and our attentions, our motives, our disordered desires. This morning I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do the miracle that only you can do when you would show every heart in here what it needs most from you right now, where our hearts have become disordered in desire, where we have failed to be satisfied in your goodness and in your graciousness towards us through your son. And we've sought to find things from other people and get things from other people that are only meant to be received from you. God, we pray this morning that for the first time or the first time in a long time, you would satisfy our hearts with you. Satisfy us in who you are for us and who you continue to be through us, for us through your grace. We ask that you would do this this morning for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.